Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. The relationship between the military and the media isn't always an easy one. Although this relationship has changed over time, these tensions aren't new. During the Revolutionary War, General George Washington criticized some newspapers for not being patriotic enough. In 1861, President Abraham Lincoln threatened to court-martial any Northern journalist whose reporting breached wartime security. And Walter Cronkite's hour-long primetime broadcast in February of 1968 remains at the center of a debate about whether the media exposed an unfolding military debacle in Vietnam or whether it undermined the American war effort. In recent years, concerns about the proper balance between secrecy and transparency, between fairness and accountability, have brought renewed attention to the importance of the military's relationship with the media. I think it's clear that uh, the article in which he and his team appeared uh, showed a poor, uh, showed poor judgment. Today I accepted General Stanley McChrystal's resignation as commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. Well, when you, when you report fake news, no. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead. Mr. President. It is my commitment to the American people who entrust us with their sons and daughters to keep them informed of the work that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Department of Defense civilians do every day to keep our nation safe. While we have many avenues to engage with the media in today's world, moving forward, I intend to do these briefings to maintain an open dialogue about the department's activities. Without the news media, the American public would have a far narrower understanding of what our military is doing in our name. So, as difficult as it sometimes may be for both parties involved, getting the relationship between the Defense Department and journalists right, and getting citizens access to information about their military, is essential for our democracy. The military and the media, today on Thank You For Your Service. In general, very different types of people tend to self-select into careers in the military and journalism. Many service members join the military because they want to be part of a team. Journalists, on the other hand, are often known for their ability to operate independently, and many reporters take up their craft because they thrive on their own. And while they both work for the American people, service members and journalists often have very different priorities. Journalists live by the mantra, get it first, but get it right. But those serving in uniform know that you should never believe a first report. 
Other cultural differences abound. So Jim and I decided to talk with Dr. Amanda Cronkite, an assistant professor at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies. She studies political communication and behavior. We asked Amanda why she thinks there's often so much friction in the military-media relationship. So most of the theorists talk about kind of having very diametrically opposed cultures and purposes. So my favorite explanation of the role of journalism in a society is that proper journalism, not punditry, not opinion, but journalism, especially investigative journalism, is meant to make public that which powerful people would rather keep private. Some of the earliest investigative journalism, and this is chronicled in James Hamilton's book, Democracy's Detectives, was really consumer protection, people knowingly selling bad milk, and journalists putting that out there. Making public that which is powerful people would like to keep private is very much not the military ethos. So do you start from the assumption of secrecy or the assumption of openness, I think is part of why the military and the media don't always understand each other? In fact, Amanda emphasized how mutually beneficial it is for the media and the military to develop real, long-term relationships. Why should the military be more open to the media? They're public servants. For me, it's really as simple as that. Every time I sit down at a U.S. government computer, it tells me I have no expectation of privacy, and public servants work for the people. So if there is something, some kind of malfeasance or something bad going on, I absolutely think that the military should want that out there, even if it's uncomfortable. I think, unfortunately, the past few years have shown more of the extent of the military's sexual assault problem, and only because people have kept on it. In November 2020, CBS, for example, had concluded about a year-long investigation on this topic, and the next day, the Secretary of the Army released something saying, we haven't done enough. So, yes, I think part of that is... It's the cost of doing business. It's also what public servants should want. If people want to keep secrets from the public that aren't for legitimate, for example, national security or privacy reasons, I don't know if those people really have public service as their goal. Of course, journalists aren't always out to tell negative stories. But Amanda told us that some of the military officers she's had in class have been skeptical even about good press. A lot of the stories the media is set up to tell are not bad stories. I had one colonel in one of my classes who complained that embedded reporters wanted to tell feel-good stories. They wanted to tell who the soldiers were. They didn't want to talk about the details of the military plan. Well, that actually is better for the military. That humanizes who soldiers are, which is something that has been very difficult for the military to do since the draft was ended. And yes, it's not about the war. It's about the people. So that type of story should appeal to the military, and yet I had students, I had military colleagues who were complaining about it because they thought saw it as soft news. Well, soft news isn't bad if it helps people learn about topics. There's a lot of research that shows it does. In fact, Amanda emphasized how mutually beneficial it is for the media and the military to develop real, long-term relationships. There's a very kind of natural camaraderie in that way. Again, this is why I think PAOs do such a good job they have that understanding that the press and the military should be seen as having an ongoing relationship. The PAOs are talking to reporters regularly. They're going on background. They're explaining, oh, no, this what this is what this... They're helping bring someone in to explain whatever the new techie toy is that the military is showing off. Dr. Cronkite also told us that, despite their differences, 
Both journalists and service members want to tell the military's story honestly and accurately. I think naturally the relationship should be better than it is. And the distrust sometimes just astounds me because the military can't get its message out to most of the public, including, frankly, most of Congress who don't sit on defense subcommittees unless they go through the media. And the media want to report on the military. And again, foreign policy is a difficult topic to to explain to the public. That's the benefit of beat reporting. There's a reason the Pentagon and the White House have press rooms. It's that you want those relationships. You want those sidebar conversations. You want to be able to pull aside someone, if you're a reporter and you don't understand something, to have them explain it to you so you get it right, because you don't want to get it wrong. And the military probably doesn't want you to get it wrong. We talked with one of those journalists who doesn't want to get it wrong. Greg Jaffe is a national security reporter for The Washington Post and the co-author of The Four Star, Four Generals in the Epic Struggle for the Future of the United States Army. Greg talked to us about one particular challenge involved in reporting on the military. The fact that for many Americans, the military is a world apart. I always kind of thought of covering the military as a bit like covering a foreign country. You know, it's got its own customs and mores and traditions and its own language and its own culture. And so I became really interested in the service cultures. And for me, the Army was always the most interesting one, in part because it's big and messy and has sort of diverse fiefdoms and points of view. And so I found, like, for me, understanding the culture of the services, how they saw the world, what the narratives they shared about why things were working or weren't working, how the stories they told themselves about what they were doing changed over time, their their mission, that became really interesting to me. And I felt like if I could sort of understand the culture and the people to a certain degree, that that made it really more easily translatable to my readers. So I really did try to see it like, okay, I'm a foreign correspondent and I'm living in U.S. Army world, which is different from the United States of America, and to try and understand that world as deeply as I could. And it meant doing stuff that like wasn't of immediate news value, like going to promotion ceremonies. I would like to go to those and listen to the speeches. And that stuff wouldn't make it into my story, but it did tell me something about, you know, just going to a promotion ceremony, particularly in Iraq or Afghanistan, or going to a memorial service for a fallen soldier in Iraq or Afghanistan. There's like no better way to understand what is it that these guys value? What's important to them? And I felt like if I could understand that and communicate that to readers, that could grab readers and make readers care about these people and really help them understand kind of what we were doing in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan. Greg told us he didn't initially intend to focus on the military, but once he started, he found it difficult to stop. I stumbled in it sort of accidentally. I was in the Atlanta Bureau, and this was 99, and Tom Ricks was the Wall Street Journal's Pentagon reporter, and they were doing a series on defense spending and asked me to sort of participate. And I did, and they sent me to an aircraft carrier for uh, a couple weeks. I hung out with an Air Force recruiter, which was fun. And then Rick's left to go to the post, and they needed someone to fill the Pentagon job, and they asked me to do it. It was 2000, January 2000, when I took over, the end of the Clinton administration. I remember thinking, oh, it'll be fun. I'll get to go to Kosovo, maybe. That'll be kind of interesting. I'll travel the world. I've never really had a chance to report outside the United States. All that'll be fun. I thought of the military at that point as like sort of a microcosm of America. You know, you could write about anything at that point. There wasn't a lot of combat going on, but, you know, the military became a nexus for arguing about sort of big social issues, whether it be don't ask, don't tell or women in combat. 
technology issues. I felt like, you know, you could do anything on the military beat. And so that was what appealed to me about it. Then the wars happened and it was just really hard to leave. You know, when Iraq and Afghanistan, the stakes feel so high, I found it really hard to walk away and to find anything that I thought would be nearly as exciting. One of the things Greg found particularly exciting and interesting was the ability to embed with deployed units. Yeah, you know, I had covered the military for, at that point, a year and a half, but I knew so little about it. I, like, still, when I did my first embed, I still didn't understand enlisted ranks, you know? It's like, you know, the three stripes, that's a sergeant, right? And then E5 and E4 and getting all that straight. So there was a lot to learn just there. The very first one I did was January of 2002. I was with a civil affairs unit out in Herat, Afghanistan. This was before Afghanistan got to be kind of a real war zone. And I remember we were out there, the civil affairs team, without body armor or helmets, you know, walking around Herat talking to folks trying to figure out like what the mission was or what they were supposed to be doing out there. They didn't have a clue and and I didn't have a clue. And so that was my first embed. The first kind of combat embeds I did were in Iraq. I think it started in September of 03, but it wasn't until 04 when I I did some embeds in Ambar that were the first kind of combat embeds. I actually embedded with John Noggle's battalion. He was the S3. And people were like, oh, you got to go meet this John Noggle guy. So I went out to meet him and they were in Ambar in just a horrible, awful spot. And I found it great to have somebody like John, who was eager to have reporters around, like talking to reporters. You know, he would introduce you, tell people to trust you, send you out to people. And that that was really great. One of my little tricks was I always, I would call the West Point's social sciences department where I got to know folks. And I would just say, you know, Hey, who are the really smart young officers who've passed through the social department as West Point cadets who I should go in bed with? It was a way to just broker an introduction so you weren't coming in completely cold. Greg told us that the lack of opportunities to do embedded reporting in recent years is what caused him to move off his full-time military beat. For Greg, embed opportunities allowed him to learn things about our wars and about the men and women fighting them that he simply couldn't have understood otherwise. I think what My overwhelming bias, and this was the real advantage of doing embeds in Iraq or Afghanistan. I would spend time in Washington talking to folks in the Pentagon or on the Hill or in the White House about what we were trying to do there. And I would think, okay, I sort of understand what we're doing. I understand the sort of the, as the Obama folks used to say, the theory of the case here. And the good thing about going to Iraq or Afghanistan was I would always come away just kind of overwhelmed by the complexity of it all. And I felt like going there was less about learning stuff and more about unlearning stuff. Like realizing how little we knew about these places, how little I understood about what was going on in these places, how just confused people were. And so this goes back to my sort of embed theory. I would always ask a battalion commander or in the social department, give me your best officer. I want to spend time with that person. And I inevitably found like your best company commander or your best battalion commander or your best platoon leader. There are two advantages. One, they know that they're among the best and so that they have a level of confidence and they don't feel the need to impress you. And two, if they're smart and they really are the best, they realize how little they know about the place and they tend to be really curious. They're trying to understand stuff. They're trying to solve this unsolvable puzzle. And so being with those guys and letting them be your tour guide was really, really helpful for me. And so it became less about bias, but really just trying to understand. And so for me, the military on these trips, you know, They did become my tour guide and they became my way of sort of getting to places where you couldn't get otherwise as an individual and just trying to understand the the complexity and mess of it all. 
but I inevitably came away just humbled, both humbled by the dedication that folks bring, of course, by their commitment, by their love for each other, but also humbled by like the impossible mission that they had and how hard it was and how little we in Washington and how little I personally understood about what we're trying to do over there. Red told us military transparency has suffered over the last decade in part because of some high-profile incidents that brought bad press, and in part because of hyper-partisan polarization. Still, he thinks the most important factor in the military's relationship with the press is the tone set by senior leaders, especially the Secretary of Defense. It's really ebbs and flows, and I think a lot of it has to do with the leadership at the time, and then some of it has to do with the war. So the embed programs were great in terms of letting us get out and meet with soldiers, and you know, I think there was a certain period in 06, 07, 08, 09, where, you know, virtually every army captain had had an experience with a national journalist, had had, a you know, at least every kind of combat arms army captain or marine captain had had a reporter in his or her unit and had some level of comfort. And I remember going to CGSC, you know, where the Command and General Staff College at Leavenworth they do a media panel there. You know, there are 500 majors in that auditorium. And they asked them how many of them had had an experience with a journalist in the last couple of years. And almost every hand in that auditorium went up. And how many had had a good experience with a journalist? And most of the hands went up. You know, they still mistrusted the national media, but it was a little bit like, oh, I'm not a racist. I've got black friends. There was an element of that to the whole thing, which for me was, you know, was positive compared to where I started, which was in 2000 before there were any embeds. And so that was great. That said, I do think it tends to ebb and flow and the SecDef mix, it plays a big role. You know, Gates was really forward leaning and the media is not the enemy. You know, we can, we need a strong media and the media make us better. It was really interesting in the wake of the recent war crimes in Australia, there was a senior Australian military officer who said something to the same effect, you know, that had we had media embedded with us, had we been more transparent with the media, some of these war crimes might not have happened. And I was really hard to see that. I feel like since that 08, 09, 2010 period, things have really slipped back. And part of that is we've had a series of sec defs who've been less and less transparent from Mattis, who I think was less transparent, to Esper, who was like ghosted us, I think, essentially in the media. And then you've had disappearing embed opportunities. So, you know, young officers don't have the experience of having reporters around with their units. And so, and then you have a president at the very top who calls the media the enemy of the people. And so I feel like we've lost much of the ground that we gained. Greg, who I've worked with before, is right in identifying that there could be more access. And some of that, as public affairs officers, as, as the comms people, we work for commanders and we don't have our own, I don't have my own communication program per se. I implement the commander's public affairs program. Now, of course, I'm the strategic advisor and my team is making all the action happen. But if it's a commander who's reticent to having media come in, then it becomes the tone of the whole organization. I've been fortunate in my career to work for some fantastic commanders who understood that the public has a right to know who our troops are, how tax dollars are being spent, and what missions we're accomplishing for the nation. This is my that if a commander is in charge of an aircraft carrier, a fighter wing, a brigade combat team, if they can stand up in a motor pool and tell their troops to drive down dangerous roads, fly in difficult airspace, do freedom of navigation operations, they should be equally as ready to say that 
to talk to a journalist about that and totally willing to bring reporters in to see those missions happen. That was Colonel Miles Kaggins, the Army 3rd Corps and Fort Hood Public Affairs Officer, or PAO. Miles and I served at the White House together at the end of the Obama administration, so I know firsthand what a great officer and communicator he is. We asked him first, what does a public affairs officer do exactly? A public affairs officer, you could translate it that into a director of communications. And they serve on uh, what we call the special staff of a commanding officer. So, for instance, a new public affairs officer in the Army, if they transitioned in as a major that's a mid-career professional, they're going to serve as the director of communication for a brigade-level organization, about 5,000 troops commanded by a colonel. This director of communication role uh, is both internal communications, corporate communications, that's down and in. We call that command information, things that the commander, that the organization needs to inform itself about. We also do external information or media relations. And this is traditional. Uh, Reporters call in, they have questions about a topic or coordinating media embeds at home and installations and garrisons or in deployed environments in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. And finally, outreach, community relations and outreach. The Defense Department and military organizations have partnerships with local community civic leaders, community leaders, religious leaders. We partner with our local recruiting, military recruiting battalions and recruiting stations to ensure that the public knows who we are in service, who our people are, what they do, and how the communities can help our Army and Defense Department be even stronger. Colonel Kaggins has also served as a public relations officer for deployed units. Most recently, he was the spokesperson for the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, where he was responsible for communicating information about U.S. military operations in Iraq and Syria. These days, when you think about the news, you also think about social media. We asked Miles what kind of effect the Internet has on his work. He replied that it has changed the way the Army should think about the relationship between openness to the press and operational security. There's not many secrets anymore on any battlefield or anywhere in the world. Look at the technology, the satellite technology, where any of us can go now and see what China is doing in the South China Sea to militarize the Spratly Islands, Fiery Reef Cross. We couldn't do that 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now you can. Everywhere that our troops patrol in Syria, there's some young man or woman on the side of the road with a cell phone who is live streaming the movements of our troops. Now, Assuredly, the patrol brief is classified secret. When the patrol comes back and reports up to higher headquarters, that report is classified secret, often secret to uh, the Five Eyes, our English-speaking allies and partners. And we have a culture of thinking that everything is so secret, but the world is always watching everything that we do. And I always advocate for, for more press. Colonel Kagans admits that sometimes military culture can make it difficult to embrace this type of radical transparency. But he told us he feels influencing that culture, and especially helping commanders set the right example, is an important part of his job as a PAO. This is my feeling that as a colonel, if I'm not going to advise the generals, then I need to take it to the House. So I have to use all of my capital, all of my skill, all I can do to give the generals the best advice I can give. And there are multiple times in my career that I have heard this 
feeling of we don't want to talk to media because we might get burned, citing General McChrystal's episode. But most of the time, most of the resistance comes from some of the more junior people, battalion commanders. And there's quite a mixed bag. Some of the battalion commanders, these are lieutenant colonels who've been in about 15 years of their, their career. And this their performance in this battalion command, they're in the top 15% of their career field, will determine if they get to go on to executive education, to war college, command brigades, and ultimately be a general. Some of them are extremely proud and confident to show off their soldiers to the press, and others are scared. And so when I talk to them in groups uh, or individually, I say, hey, look, focus on what you want the outcome to be, what you want the public to know about your soldiers. Don't get your mind wrapped around what could go wrong. And if you're proud of them and if you can talk to them at the motor pool, if you're leading them well and you're pinning awards on them and promoting them, the public should know about that. It's sometimes a struggle. I have peers who've worked for commanders who have just had, who just really are anti-media under the guise of the media is just going to cause harm to the organization or embarrass us. It's not anti-freedom of press. It's just, I'd rather not deal with the press at all. So there will be no negative stories out of it. They're perfectly kind and cordial to reporters. They consume the media, but they just don't want to bring them in. And other commanders who've had the doors uh, wide open. I've been fortunate to mostly serve in my career for people like Colonel Retired Peter Newell. He's out on the West Coast doing great things with innovation. Uh, Major General Retired Dana Petard. And General Paul Funk, who's at TRADOC, and now General White. And all four of them, as uh, commanders I've served directly for, have, have been open to having press come in and see the troops, even as none of the four of them was interested in talking to media a lot themselves, right? So they, these are not the kind of leaders who had self-aggrandizement or wanted their name in, the, in lights, but they were willing to talk to the press at times where the public needed to hear from the commander. That was a theme we heard repeatedly from all our guests, the importance of leaders, whether they are military commanders or civilian appointees, in establishing a climate of transparency. But perhaps the most interesting answer Miles gave us was when I asked him whether and how partisan dynamics change the way he approaches his job. He didn't answer that question directly, but he told us this story. Your listeners are astute observers of national security. In January, Iran launched theater ballistic missiles at Iraq as a response to the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani and Mohandas. Missiles were fired at Al-Assad Air Base and Erbil Air Base, and those missiles had impacts with huge craters, and the blast and shockwave caused dramatic brain injury into some of our soldiers and airmen and civilians. Those injuries do not manifest themselves in the way that a bullet wound or a knife wound or a broken limb would. You can't see them immediately. And there was a perception by some in Washington, D.C. that this wasn't very serious. One of the things that my team had to do for public affairs was immediately take pictures of craters and damaged trailers that the troops lived in and damaged equipment and send those up all the way to national command authorities for the decision on how the United States would respond to this attack. There was questions of if this attack was really real, you know, if Iran really wanted to kill people, wouldn't they have killed people? It was kind of fake, you know, they just fired him in the desert. I believe in deity and it's only because of God that 
we did not have anyone killed in these attacks as there were people's housing trailers that were blasted to smithereens. We brought media there a couple of days ago and you can see some of the B-roll and photographs that were taken in interviews with soldiers, some of them who later were awarded the Purple Heart. When those Purple Hearts were presented, we did not present them with fanfare in the way that we might present somebody with a Purple Heart who is in a firefight. Instead, the Purple Hearts were presented in an appropriate COVID-safe ceremonies. And we posted photos quietly online to Defense Video Imagery and Distribution System. It's DIVIDS is our, the Defense Department's repository for photos and video from troops and aircraft carriers in Iraq and Syria, Afghanistan. And we had this quiet rollout because there was still some scrutiny feelings from inside the Beltway that we did not want to raise in Iraq. Because that would only cause more downward pressure on the command and not give us the space to do other important things that we were doing at the same time of consolidating and repositioning some of our troops in Iraq and Syria, handing over some bases, and still prosecuting the war against the remnants of ISIS and advising assisting our partners. Had we made big fanfare of the Purple Hearts, the Washington the Beltway reporters would have asked pointed questions on Pennsylvania Avenue and in the Pentagon about these Purple Hearts and the injuries and how our soldiers were doing. And frankly, they would have said, well, it seems like these headaches have resulted in Purple Hearts. And we did not want the individual soldiers to be drawn into that. These are private sergeants, captains, airmen, who have experienced probably the worst day of their life with a ballistic missile blowing up uh, meters away from them. And it's much different impact than a rocket. It's a much different impact than a 155 round IED. The shockwave is huge. Glass was broken two kilometers away from these ballistic missile impacts. So that's going to jostle your brain around quite a bit. And the symptoms don't necessarily show up the next morning. But we wanted to keep the troops out of it. We wanted to ensure that the command in Iraq and Syria was able to focus on the things we were doing, and we did not want the department brought into a political squabble wrestling over what happened to our service members. Maybe there is no cookie-cutter solution that will allow us to always get the relationship between the military and the media right. But both Alice and I were struck by the answer Greg Jaffe gave us when we asked him what service means to him. And we think it might help us all get things right a little more often. I guess for service for me personally as a journalist, and I've tried to sort of live this with mixed results, is just maybe it's empathy for our fellow Americans at this point. I feel like we do such a bad job listening to each other. And that as a journalist, that's sort of the service that we provide is, is listening to folks, trying to understand why they think what they think and how they came to think it rather than judging them too much to really spend time with people and try to understand how they see the world to the certain extent that we have a mission as a journalist that's it and if we do it well you know maybe it goes a small way to healing kind of some of the sort of deep partisan divides that i think have become so dangerous for our nation going forward so that's service for me that's our show for today Thank you for your services taking a break until after the new year. Alice and I will miss you, but we'll be getting some much needed R&R. And we hope you all have a wonderful and safe holiday season. If you want to hear more from our terrific guests, you can find Amanda Cronkite on Twitter 
at A-B-C-R-O-N-K-H-I-T-E. Greg Jaffe is at Greg Jaffe. That's G-R-E-G-J-A-F-F-E. And Miles Caggins on both Twitter and Instagram is at Miles Caggins, M-Y-L-E-S-C-A-G-G-I-N-S. His commands page is at Fort Hood on Twitter. And if you know anybody who's thinking about joining the military, especially as an army officer, please tell them to Google Major Miles Caggins Army Strong video. Miles starred in an army recruiting commercial seven years ago, and his ad is so inspiring that it almost made me want to come out of retirement. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a five-star rating really does help other people find us. And we love to hear from our listeners, especially when they share terrible dad jokes. Follow us on Twitter. We're at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast. Or send us an email telling us what you think of the show and asking Jim to ease off the dad jokes. Our address is tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Polite notes only, please. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you in the new year.